Let's pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for another day, Lord, for life, for breath, for bodies that woke up today that still work. And Father, thank you so much that no matter when that day comes, when we don't have breath anymore, the life that we have in Christ will go on forever. Thank you so much for what you have done for us in the gospel. And thank you that you've saved us into a body. Lord, you've actually made us members of one another. And we're here together, and we get to open up your word. And I plead with you to let your Holy Spirit be our teacher this morning. I pray that every one of us would be able to walk away with at least one point, one thing that gives us a new perspective, that gives us new effectiveness, that exposes sin or gives us encouragement about how to be the kind of gospel ministers that you've designed for us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Once again, pull out your notebook. Um, It's really a privilege for me to be here to do this with you. Um, Because as we approach the end of the year, it's really important that we all remember, like Lori was mentioning, that wellspring purpose and wellspring disciplines and meeting with God and his word is not something that we just want to encourage everybody to sign on to for nine months while you're going through wellspring. But it's really um, our desire and our intent that this would really shape our walk with Christ and our relationships for the rest of our lives. So our wellspring purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And by now you know that this is what we're after in Wellspring. You hear it in our teaching. You see it in your homework. It's what we talk about in our discussion groups. And we're reminded over and over again that it's our responsibility to shepherd our hearts and that we need to shepherd our hearts and that we need to do that with God's word and we never move on from that. And all of that's absolutely true. But if we're not careful, all of that can start to feel like a burden if we only think about the responsibility of, oh, God, read the Bible. But if you look back at the purpose again, right there in the middle of it, you see that phrase, toward Jesus Christ. And this morning, I want to remind us why Jesus is the one who makes the difference between this being a burden versus this being a joyful, lifelong pursuit of knowing God better and being used by him to show what the gospel is can accomplish in the life of a sinner who believes. So turn to Isaiah 53. I am just blown away by this description of Jesus given to Israel hundreds of years before he actually came to earth. This is our Savior. We'll start reading in verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Isn't that encouraging? Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. This is the Savior we're pursuing. He is the object of discipline one. We are drawing near to him, submitting to him, worshiping and adoring and trusting in this 
suffering servant whom the Father sent. And remember, Jesus is what keeps us from wrongly looking at discipline one as a burden. Discipline one says she prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. And so, you know, I hope by now, you know that we don't talk about discipline one. We don't talk about opening up our Bible or having a reading plan because that is just what we do here at Grace Bible Church. You know, it's just the GBC way. That is, that is not it. Please, if that's ever how you think about this, just tell yourself, wait, that's not true. That is just not true. Why do we spur one another on to meet with God in his word each day, to eagerly seek him on every page of our Bible? Well, it's because this is where we meet with our God, with our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are weak. Where else do we have to go? How wearying to limp along in our own efforts to read the word, thinking that somehow this is just some sort of exercise I need to check off every day. If we don't keep before us the sweetness of our Savior, He's the one whom we find in the Word. He died so that we can draw near and be changed. And so we can be women who grow in godliness and obedience because we know and love Him. And we can be women who minister to those in our households with our heart for God and the gospel. That's discipline too. Our home is our first priority for where we display the transforming effect of having drawn near to Jesus through his word. And that's where, um, and, and our home is where that effect needs to be felt first. And our homes are where it can often be hardest. But the good thing about that is that it keeps us from depending on ourselves. Often our home and our family relationships are where we best see how much difference it makes whether we're remembering the gospel or we're not. Often we have a sinful, prideful desire to be more concerned with someone else's sin other than our own until we look to the cross and we remember what Christ had to bear for our sin and we remember that he rose and set us free from sin including our sinful, judgmental, self-centered responses that we might want to have when others sin or just do things that we don't like. And on the positive side, our D2 relationships, our home and our family, are typically where we have the best opportunities for long-term relationships and ongoing influence for the gospel in what we say, how we live, how we serve, and especially in how we repent. The people we live with have the best chance to see if what we profess is authentic. Do we really love Christ? If we do, it will show, even if we struggle mightily with sin. A believer must refuse to be content to let sin build barriers in relationships. And so we seek forgiveness and restoration. And if, uh, you didn't, if you haven't heard Anne's peacemaking lesson, she really covered a lot of very helpful things along those lines in that lesson a few months ago. But when we do this, that displays Christ's work in our lives. And that makes the home the perfect training ground for discipline three, which is ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Whether we're talking about caring for those in our small group, meeting with other women one-on-one maybe, serving in the nursery, being intentional with conversations at a small group, praying for our church, teaching Sunday school, cleaning bathrooms, taking meals, babysitting, all of that needs to flow out of the relationship that we have with Christ. Okay. Well, with that perspective, let's look at ministry, the example of Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Go ahead and open up your Bible there. I'd like to read through the entire chapter, and then we'll focus on verses 5 to 10. Now, while you're turning there, I want to remind you of a little bit of background. When Scott was here, he gave us uh, an overview of the background as well. But Paul's ministry in Thessalonica is found in Acts 17. This is on his second missionary journey. And Acts 17, 1 says, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, 
they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now, he may have been there a little longer than three weeks. It possibly could have been around three months, but explaining the scriptures in the synagogue happened only three Sabbaths, three times. Um, And so just let that sink in. A church existed in Thessalonica because Paul was faithful with the gospel for a very short time. That is the power of the gospel. And now Paul is writing to them about a year later from Corinth. So follow with me as I read 1 Thessalonians 1. Let's look at the impact of the gospel in Thessalonica. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and Lord and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now, with our focus on verses 5 to 10, we're going to look at five ministry truths that will better help us understand discipline 3. These are some important components of ministry that we see in Paul's ministry with the Thessalonians. And you have them in your outline. The first point is our longest by far, so don't get worried. We'll take our time with it, but then we'll move more quickly through the four remaining points. So we'll start with number one. Ministry's message must include the gospel. You have a blank in your outline to fill in there. Ministry's message must include the gospel. Now, when we talk about ministry, we must be sure we understand what the message is. So let's talk about the message of ministry and the centrality of the gospel to that message. Now, in our homework, we read through the whole book of 1 Thessalonians and looked for the kinds of things Paul addressed. Perhaps you noticed different kinds of communication, evangelism, encouragement, strengthening, warning, commands, instructions. And we saw a variety of content in his communication. He certainly, we certainly saw the gospel, and we also saw that Paul talked about walking worthy of the God who called them. He talked about the word of God and the return of Christ. He taught about suffering, about sanctification, about relationships. And so we saw that Paul had rich communication with this church. His message addressed a broad spectrum of the Christian life. But what we don't want to miss is where he began and what all of his communication was rooted in, and that's the gospel. Paul said in verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The gospel was central to Paul's message. Now here in 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul's talking about evangelism. He was bringing the gospel to those who had never before heard it. Now, But Paul's use of the gospel and his view of gospel ministry was not limited to evangelism. He didn't reserve the gospel for evangelism alone. And I think it's helpful to look at some verses and see Paul's broader use of the gospel beyond evangelism. So let's walk through these verses in the notes together. Romans 1, Paul's writing to believers in Rome, and in verse 15 he writes, So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So Paul is eager to preach the gospel to these believers. Then in Romans 16, 25, at the end of the same letter, he says, Now to him who's able to establish you according to my gospel. 
Paul wants these believers to be established according to the gospel. And then 1 Corinthians 1.18, he writes, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, it's to us who are being saved. The word of the cross, the gospel, is, present tense, right now, the power of God. Now, beginning in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, he writes, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. So the fact that these believers had already received the gospel and were standing in the gospel and were being saved by the gospel didn't keep Paul from making it known to them again, reminding them as believers of the same gospel that saved them. In verse 3, he writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And what did he receive? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. This gospel that Paul is preaching, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for our sins, is of first importance. And in Colossians 1.23, he exhorts believers not to be moved away from the hope of the gospel. It says, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Now, listen to how Milton Vincent in a gospel primer summarizes the role of the gospel in the life of believers. You have this in your notes as well. He's going to refer to some of the same passages that we've already talked about, but it's worth hearing again. So let's um, look at this. You have it in your notes. The New Testament teaches that Christians ought to hear the gospel as much as non-Christians do. In fact, the first chapter of Romans, the Apostle Paul tells the believers in the church that he was anxious to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. Of course he was anxious to preach the gospel to the non-Christians at Rome, yet he specifically states that he was eager to preach it to the believers as well. To the Corinthian churches who, excuse me, to the Corinthian Christians who had already believed and been saved by the gospel, Paul says, I make known to you the gospel which you have believed. He then restates the historical facts of the gospel before showing them how these gospel facts apply to their beliefs about the afterlife. This is actually Paul's approach to various other issues throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. In most of Paul's letters to churches, sizable portions of them are given over to rehearsing gospel truths. For example, Ephesians 1 through 3 is all gospel, Colossians 1 and 2 is gospel, and Romans 1 through 11 is gospel. The remainder of such books show specifically how to bring those gospel truths to bear on life. Re-preaching the gospel and then showing how it applied to life was Paul's choice method for ministering to believers, thereby providing a divinely inspired pattern for me to follow when ministering to myself and to other believers. So this may not be a new idea to you at this point in Wellspring, but for many of us, We've spent years thinking the gospel is primarily how people get saved. So you preach it to unbelievers. And we do. We don't want to stop that. But if that's all we think, that's a narrow view of the gospel. That's not how Paul saw the gospel. That kind of thinking is missing something very important. And that, that important thing is that the gospel still must be preached to those who are already in the faith. So here are the next couple of blanks on the outline. The gospel must be preached to unbelievers with the hope that they will believe, and the gospel must be preached to those who are believers. Now that doesn't mean that we neglect anything else in the word. We already talked about how, much, how varied and rich Paul's communication was with the Thessalonians when Scott taught a few weeks ago. Um, We saw in 1 Thessalonians 5, the same book, that there are times that we need to speak admonishment, encouragement, help. So God's word is full of commands to obey, as well as promises, instructions, commands. But we don't want to miss, as we look at the whole counsel of God, we don't want to miss our ongoing need for the gospel as well. The gospel is foundational, not only to salvation, but to every aspect of the Christian life. 
So let's talk a little bit more about that. What do we really mean when we say it's foundational? Well, the gospel puts God's character on display for us. His justice, his mercy, his power. As we behold God's character in the gospel, it grows our reverence for him, and we know him better. The gospel provides us with new life through Christ's resurrection from the dead, and with that new life comes new abilities and desires to love and obey our Savior. The gospel gives us the certain hope of eternity with the God who made us and saved us. And the gospel sets us on a path in which we can be assured that God is at work, even in trials, for our good. To make us more like Jesus, to purify our faith. The gospel assures us that on our best day and on our worst day, our acceptance with God depends on the finished work of Jesus alone. And so we obey him out of love, out of love, not because we're trying to earn his approval. It's the gospel that sets us free from condemnation. And the gospel is what ushers us into life as members of Christ's body here in the church in which we're members of one another. The gospel's foundational in all of this. It is our treasure. So with that in mind, let's go back to 1 Thessalonians 1. We read in 1 Thessalonians 1, 5, for our gospel did not come to you in word only. So Paul is emphasizing that the gospel did come to the Thessalonians. He's making it stand out. We see it also in chapter 2, verse 2. Um, he writes, but after we'd already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. See, he didn't let opposition keep him from speaking the gospel. And then in verse 4 of chapter 2, he says, just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. So if he was going to be speaking to them, they were going to be hearing the gospel. And then down in verse 8 and 9 of chapter 2, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. See, he loved them so much that he did whatever it took to give them the gospel. That's the dominant theme as he thinks back on his time with them, is that the gospel was central. And what we have to remember as we step into one another's lives and beyond our church is that we never leave the gospel behind. We want to help one another to understand the gospel better and better so that it can have its full transforming effect in every area of our lives, all the while growing in our knowledge and closeness to Jesus. Wouldn't it be misleading if we gave the impression that the gospel was only that which saved us long ago? <clears throat> because the gospel has everything to do with us growing in Christ. So our message must include the gospel. <clears throat> now, if that's true, then what must we know? Well, we need to know the gospel, right? And that's why we had you write out the gospel in your homework this week. And I will tell you, that was turned out to be a very powerful exercise for me. I actually did the rest of my homework and kind of was dragging my feet about, about doing this assignment because I'm thinking, well, I just, teaching this, I'm getting ready to teach this whole lesson that's about the gospel. But I finally decided to be obedient and uh, yesterday morning took a long time with my, bi my Bible and my journal and my pen, and it just made my eyes and my hand and my brain and everything think about nothing else but the gospel. And it, I was actually, even with all the things I just told you, I was surprised at how powerful that was just to calm my heart and to clear my mind of all the things that wanted to be bouncing around in there and clamoring. Um, 
And so I hope that you were blessed by that as well. If you didn't get to it, please take the time to do it. It's just, I realize it's probably a discipline I should do, you know, once a week, just sit down and write it all out because it just makes God's word soak into your heart. Okay. So we had you write that out in your homework. Um, And so let's talk a little bit more about what do we mean when we say the gospel. On one hand, it can be as succinct as God saves sinners. Um, We already read 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and then he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Those are core truths of the gospel. But when we're ministering with the gospel and sharing the gospel, we often include some context and some implications of these core truths. We talk about that God has a right to rule as the creator, and, and we talk about the judgment that we deserve because of sin. We talk about what the gospel does in the life of a believer and the promise of eternal life with God. And so to give you some tools to help you better understand and to better communicate the gospel, you received a gospel resources handout this morning. And so I hope that's helpful for you. If you have any questions about that, you can ask me or Lori or your discussion leader. But these are just tools to help you grow in communicating the gospel and shepherding with the gospel, both in your own heart as well as with others that God places in your life. So although it was in your homework for today, we're going to have you hang on to the gospel that you wrote out, and I, we want you to look at it again this week and refine it if you need to. You could, we just can't review the gospel too much. And so as we all continue to grow in our understanding of the gospel's power and purposes, we'll be more willing to talk about it and more comfortable talking about it with others, whether believers or unbelievers. So the gospel is not just information that we must know. It's about knowing Christ. It's about knowing Christ. The gospel needs to saturate us because it is the good news of our Savior. And so as we think about ministry, we have the whole counsel of God, we have all of God's word, and it's power to make us more like Christ, and we want to use God's word to care for one another. And as we do that, we need to remember Paul's example, how he was eager to preach the gospel to believers, and to make the gospel known to them, and to establish them in the gospel. He wanted them to understand that the gospel was of first importance, that it was the power of God for those who believe, and that believers must not move away from the hope of the gospel. See, the gospel was the foundation under his instruction, his teaching, his encouragement, his warnings, his commands, and our relationships need the gospel in that way as well. That's what belongs at the center of our relationships, just as it was for Paul. You know, we want to be thinking, you're my sister in Christ, you're my brother in Christ, and I want to encourage you with the gospel, and I want you to encourage me with the gospel. And so sometimes we just need to evaluate, is that my heart when I go to someone, when I'm struggling? Do I ask them, do I want them to speak truth to me, to give me the gospel? Do I just want them to feel sorry for me? Sometimes that's why I go, but I have good friends who will give me the gospel anyway. Because when we are struggling, where we need to begin is with the gospel. See, when we begin with remembering who God is and the offensiveness of our sin to him and what Christ suffered so that our sin could be forgiven and that he rose from the dead so that believers are freed from sin's enslavement and can walk in newness of life, that softens my heart to repent. It causes me to grieve over the high costs that Christ endured for me. Thinking about my sin in light of the cross sweetens my love for Jesus. And the gospel also prepares us to fight our sin and to obey his commands, his commands by which we honor him and show our love for him. And keeping the gospel central gives us hope. It gives us hope. It helps us to remember that we're saved by grace. We're not under condemnation. Jesus bore all the condemnation we deserve. We are deeply loved by our God, and we see that in sharpest focus in the gospel. (coughs) Now, ministry, of course, is not always about sin we're struggling with. We need to encourage and help and instruct in many different circumstances and seasons of life. And remembering the gospel can provide great comfort, hope, and endurance. And it takes practice to do this. You know, our habit when we're struggling may not to be to look to the gospel or to ask others 
to point us to the gospel. We might feel kind of stuck. We might be wallowing in our struggles. We might kind of just wallow in feeling guilty or hurt or indignant, maybe just wanting to withdraw, pull back from people. And so we just need to keep walking humbly and carefully with one another as we grow in bringing the gospel to one another in appropriate ways, in ways that are helpful. We never want to quit being compassionate and sympathetic, concerned, mourning with those who mourn. And in the midst of loving one another, we bring the gospel to one another because that is where our hope is. It's where we're drawn back to the lover of our souls. So that's point one. Ministry's message must include the gospel. All right, point number two is that ministry requires an uncommon messenger. Ministry requires an uncommon messenger. You have another blank on your outline there. So as important as the gospel message is, the content of the gospel was not where Paul was actually focused in chapters 1 and 2 of 1 Thessalonians. Here he was focused not on the content of the message, but the carrier of the message. He wanted to remind them of the kind of messengers who brought the gospel to them. And he wanted to do that because there were some terrible accusations floating around Thessalonica about Paul. Paul was being slandered, and for the sake of the gospel, he needed to remind them of the kind of gospel messenger he was. So let's read verse 5 again. He writes, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So how did the gospel come? Well, it did come in word, but not in word only. It came in power. It came with the Holy Spirit. It came with full conviction. And how do we know the gospel came this way? What does Paul point to by way of evidence? Well, let's finish reading the verse. He says, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Now, just as is a word that shows a comparison. It's almost like an equal sign. Paul is saying that the evidence that the gospel came with power and with the Holy Spirit and with full conviction is the kind of messengers that he and Sylvanus and Timothy were when they were among them. Paul is focusing them beyond just the content of the gospel um, and reminding them of the kind of messengers they were when they were ministering among them. The things Paul remembers when he thinks back on his time with them is that uh, when he came to them, there was power. In his interactions with them, the power of God was evident. And second, he remembers that his coming was in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's work in these messengers was evident. And third, he remembers that when they came, they had fullness of confidence. These messengers had full conviction about the message they were proclaiming. Now, all these things he's describing, power, Holy Spirit, full conviction, were seen in the men who brought the message, in the messengers. He says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you. Now, here in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, Paul's point is to describe the gospel messenger. And that's because the quality of the messenger is so important. That's why we never move beyond discipline one. We don't move on from that. We need to always keep that central. Meeting with God daily in his word is what will make us fruitful gospel servants, gospel ministers, uncommon messengers who come in power and who come in the Holy Spirit and who come with full conviction about the power of God's word um, for, for any, any need that's brought before us. You know, I think about that and I think, how many times do I aim way too low? You know, I don't think I always pray, God, please, as I seek to bring the gospel into my relationships today, send your power and your Holy Spirit. And God, give me your full conviction of the power of your word to comfort and to convict and to transform. But what if I did? What if you did pray that way? What if we thought that way? What if that were our focal point? What if we were thinking, God, I want to rely on you and your power in this conversation? In this response, I need your spirit. But we need to understand exactly what we mean by that, right? Especially, let's think about what, what is meant by power here. 
Well, let's look and see what power looked like in Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy. In 1 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 6, he says about halfway into the verse, he says, as apostles of Christ, we might have, he's saying, we had the right to assert our authority, but we proved to be gentle. We proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Here's Paul, this man with power and with the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And he says, I was like a nursing mother among you. I was protecting you with my gentleness. Verse 8 says, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. Now, is that how we typically define power? Gentle, nursing, mother, tender care, affection. See, Paul was an apostle. He had authority. But Paul went to extreme lengths in order to not be heavy-handed. As a matter of fact, Paul's intent was to be the very opposite of demanding and controlling. That's why Paul's analogy of a nursing mother is so powerful. A nursing mother doesn't want to place a burden on the baby. Instead, she seeks to remove any obstacle to her baby receiving what he needs. You know, after a hard delivery, a nursing mother doesn't say to her baby, well, now you owe me. (laughs) Veronica's smiling. (laughs) You wish. You know, she doesn't say, hey, listen, I work night and day to keep you comfortable I keep you dry, I keep you fed, and so you need to pay attention to me. She might wish she could. But instead, she stoops to the level of his need, she gently feeds him, she burps him, she carefully sees to it that he gets everything he needs, and she does it over and over and over again at her own expense. Paul's gentleness was his way of accommodating himself to people who had never heard the gospel before he got there. And so for us, it means being available to others as well, to anyone in our sphere of influence. We don't want to just stand back and say, hey, get it together. You know, this kind of care steps into other people's world, into their life, into their mess, with love and gentleness and humility and patience. We heard about that last week. And it helps them get to a better place. Didn't Jesus do that? And Paul did that too. The Thessalonians needed a nursing mother, and this apostle of Christ said, okay, that's what I'll be for them. The gospel is the milk that we all need. It's what changes us. It's what nourishes us, and it's what will nourish others too as we walk with them in love. Now, there can be a temptation as we grow in the Lord and maybe we've read a lot of good books, done a lot of Bible studies, maybe we're really consistent in meeting with God and his word, there can be a temptation to feel a little self-satisfied about that. You know, maybe a little prideful. Hey, you know, I'm doing pretty well. But that is so dangerous, especially in our relationships. I just want to I just want you to think for a minute about the the men who lead this church. They are not perfect. But they are wise men. And they are godly men. And they don't ever make people feel really bad because they're just not where they are. They don't. Rather, they're like that gentle nursing mother. They nurture. They shepherd. They're patient. They meet each of us right where we are to help us grow, to help us mature. So praise God by his grace that he's placed leaders over us like that. Now back in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, we're going to read that verse one more time. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And how do we know that? Well, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So what kind of women do we want to prove to be? Will we be gentle messengers of the gospel? Think about what this is saying. Will we be like a nursing mother tenderly caring for her children? That's the kind of women we need to be. And so it's just good to reflect what will it take 
in my life and in your life to be this kind of uncommon messenger to the people in our lives. So let's shepherd our hearts to the word of God to get the gospel, to get Jesus. Let's plead with God for his power. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to produce his fruit in our lives. And let's plead for greater conviction about the gospel's power to transform lives through us. Because ministry requires an uncommon messenger, but we have all that we need in Christ to be that messenger. Okay, let's take our little break, and uh, we'll pick up again in five minutes. Okay, we're at number three on our outline. We'll move a little more quickly now, but number three is that ministry involves imitation. You've got a blank on your outline for that. So read 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 with me. It begins, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now by saying us and of the Lord, Paul is not saying that there were two different lives to imitate because Paul's pattern of life was in alignment with Jesus. He was saying that if you imitate me, you will be imitating Christ. He also says this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11:1. 1. He says, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. So sisters, we do want to make sure that the gospel comes in words. That was our first point. But we also need to push a step beyond that so that our prayer is, God, please make me an imitatable woman. Whoa. (laughs) Me? Make me an example for others to imitate? Yes, that's exactly what we're saying here. People are watching us, and that can feel kind of scary, but that makes it a good time to remember the gospel. See, as we align our life with Christ, the gospel enables us to live a life worth imitating, and that's good news. Now, I love that word alignment. It makes me think of driving. You know, it's easy to tell when a car is out of alignment, right? It's kind of hard to drive. But when a car is in alignment, it means it travels in a straight line and all the tires are pointing in the same direction and they get even wear. You don't have to fight with that steering wheel to keep the car going straight. Now, when you drive a car that's in alignment, you don't even notice that it's in alignment, right? You don't drive this car and say, wow, this car has awesome alignment. (laughs) I don't. Um, You expect the car to be in alignment because that's the way it's supposed to operate. And that's the kind of life in Christ that we want. That's what we need to be aiming for, to be in, in such proper alignment to Jesus that people don't even notice us. That's the way we're supposed to operate, to so align our lives with Christ that others might imitate our life as we're imitating Christ. So what does having a life that's worth imitating look like? Let's just think about that for a minute. Because if someone's going to be imitated, that means they need to be the right kind of example. Now, a month or so ago, you heard Scott Maxwell teach from Acts 20 about Paul's example. And he made the point that it's God's kindness to give us examples in the Christian life. And Paul is our greatest non-divine example that we have as a church. Not that he was perfect. But as a gospel minister, Paul not only preached the gospel and established churches and instructed them, but he also put his own life right in front of them so they could see a life transformed by the gospel. Paul didn't just come in and drop off an instruction manual, but he actually lived with them so that his example brought an impact to the lives of those around him. And that's God's goal for us. God's design in gospel ministry is that we give one another not just the gospel, but we give each other also an example to follow. So how did the Thessalonians imitate Paul's example? Let's look again at verse 6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. See, we need to remember because we easily forget that we live in enemy territory. That's another truth that needs to be preached to our hearts. We live in a very volatile place and time. There is a rebel prince who is fighting against our king, and there are rebels who are following that rebel prince. And the rebels that follow him are hostile to God. And oftentimes they're going to be hostile against you and me because of our loyalty to him. But 
in God's design, by God's plan, the gospel goes forward. And oftentimes, many people receive the gospel in the midst of tribulation and affliction. Paul experienced that, and he says that you became imitators of us, having received the word in much tribulation. Now notice, though, that's not where the verse ends. He says, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't naturally tend to think that tribulation, affliction, and joy go together. You know, I tend to think that the tribulation and affliction are going to kind of dampen my joy. But this verse tells us that with the tribulation came the joy of the Holy Spirit. So I want to take you once again to a gospel primer, where Milton Vincent helps us understand how the gospel enables us to have joy in our trials. You have this in your notes as well. More than anything else I could ever do, the gospel enables me to embrace my tribulations and thereby position myself to gain full benefit from them. For the gospel is the one great permanent circumstance in which I live and move. And every hardship in my life is allowed by God only because it serves his gospel purposes for me. When I view my circumstances in this light, I realize the gospel is not just one piece of good news that fits in, um, that fits into my life somewhere among all the bad. I realize instead that the gospel makes genuinely good news out of every other aspect of my life, including my severest trials. The good news about my trials is that God is forcing them to bow to his gospel purposes and do good unto me by improving my character and making me more conformed to the image of Christ. Preaching the gospel to myself each day provides a lens through which I can view my trials in this way and see the true cause for rejoicing that exists in them. I can then embrace trials as friends and allow them to do God's good work in me. And that is what the Thessalonians did. They received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And it is in that sense that they imitated Paul. The word came to them, and there was trouble everywhere, and yet they had joy. And we can have that kind of joy. We must plead with God to make us imitators of Christ so as to be this kind of joyful example to others. So when trouble comes in our lives, there is still joy, and others can imitate that. Now, with all that said, I know in my own life, joy has been a discipline that I've needed to learn. I've needed to learn. I've needed to cultivate it. You know, you just can't say you've got joy if nobody else can tell. You know, it's not going to just be way down, 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 deep in your heart like the little song says, if it's not also showing on your face once in a while. And I have found it very, very helpful to study what Scripture tells me to rejoice over and then to do it. Just obey what Scripture says to rejoice over. And so if you need help cultivating joy, spend some time looking up joy in the Word and just as a help there, you have some references in your notes to get you started. Maybe it's something that you'd want to spend some more time studying over the summer when Wellspring is over. So we saw that ministry's message must include the gospel. That was our first point. We saw that ministry requires an uncommon messenger. Remember that picture of a gentle nursing mother? And we saw that ministry involves imitation. And now, our next blank, ministry must produce not only exemplary lives, but effective lives. Ministry must produce not only exemplary lives, but effective lives. Look at verse 7. We'll actually start in verse 6. Um, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. See, the life that's imitatable is also an effective life. It's a life that God uses to multiply ministry. The life, um, let's see, the Thessalonians became imitators for a reason, for a purpose. The so that at the beginning of verse 7 indicates that there's a purpose coming. Paul's saying you became imitators so that you became an example. 
So in verses 6 and 7, there's a chain reaction taking place in gospel ministry. And that chain reaction is one person imitating another and then someone else imitating them. Christ is imitated by Paul and Silas and Timothy. And then they become men that the Thessalonians imitated. And now the Thessalonians are examples all over Macedonia and Achaia. That's the chain reaction. Christ to Paul, Paul to the Thessalonians, and the Thessalonians to anybody else who who hears about their faith. And that's where we need to set our sights in gospel ministry. You know, if we step into someone's life just for the purpose of being an example to them, again, we're not thinking big enough. See, when we step into a relationship, it might be a formal discipleship relationship or an informal, the informal discipleship that goes on between friends or in our small group. Um, we want to go into those relationships thinking that as we are an example to others, we want to be preparing them to be examples to the other people in their lives. And then in verse 8, Paul offers us an explanation of this imitation chain reaction that's been taking place. It's an explanation, again, of what is meant by effective lives. He says in verse 8, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. That's how the Thessalonians were the example. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. See, it's gone forth everywhere. See, this word sounded forth means something like a trumpet blast. It was a distinct sounding forth to call an army to attention or to fight. And notice how far that biblical trumpet blast went forth. Not only to Macedonia, not only to Achaia, but Paul says in every place their faith has gone forth. That is an effective sounding forth. The key statement here about how effective all this is happens in verse 8. He says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. The great preacher Paul couldn't say anything more. Their gospel proclamation and example was so effective, spoke so loudly for itself, their lives were so thoroughly transformed as believers that by the time Paul tried to add to it, he was giving old news. He had no need to say anything. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the apostle Paul being reduced to silence? So what have we seen? Well, we've seen that living a life of ministry means that we never leave the gospel behind. It's the fabric of our thoughts. It's the joy of our hearts, the consolation of our souls. It's what we're always looking to share with others. And we saw second that it means to be an uncommon messenger with that gospel, displaying God's power and his Holy Spirit and conviction through gentleness. It also means being an example to others, having joy in the midst of trials. And now we've seen that we need to desire that people actually imitate our example. We want that to be so effective that ministry is multiplied. Ministry continues through others. We need to pray that God would use those we minister to in our homes, in our small groups, in every part of our lives to speak more broadly than we do. And that's a big call. But we don't want to shrink back from it. Um, Instead, let's look at it as something that we want to aim for and pray for by God's grace. That's what the gospel has the power to do. It's what it calls us to do. So pray for God to use us in this way. That the gospel would be proclaimed and lived out with a life that's imitatable for the people around us so that they would become an example to others, to others that we can't reach. So that's a chain reaction. That's a big prayer. That's a prayer of faith. But it's what Paul's describing here. And that's the kind of ministry we want to aim for. All right, number five, ministry labors for nothing less than repentance. Look at verses 9 and 10. Now in verse 9, he's explaining verse 8. Verse 8 ended with, we have no need to say anything. Now why is that? Verse 9, for they themselves report about us What kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. The Macedonians and Achaeans and all the others were reporting two things. First, they're reporting about the gospel messenger that Paul was and the kind of reception he had with the Thessalonians. So what kind of reception did Paul have? 
Well, the word reception is the word for an entrance. Paul had a wide open entrance, a welcome path into their lives. That's the report that was going out, that Paul's ministry was well received. Paul here is emphasizing again how important the messenger is. His manner among them, the kind of man he proved to be among them, his behavior was never an obstacle to the gospel. Rather, we get the idea that when they saw him coming, that they were thinking, hey, say more. We want more time with you. They never met anybody like him. And what was so different about Paul? Well, remember, we talked about that on, in number two on the outline. Paul, as he brought the message, brought it with power, with the spirit, with full conviction, and displaying how the gospel had transformed him with gentleness, with joy and tribulation. They'd never met anybody like that before. The life of the messenger is a huge component in gospel ministry. And that helps complement something else. It's the second thing that the Macedonians were reporting. Remember, first they were reporting about Paul and Titus, or, excuse me, Silas and Timothy, and the reception that they had with the Thessalonians. And second, they were reporting about how the Thessalonians turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. They turned to God from idols. And so what do we call that when someone turns? repentance. The report is how they repented. The point of the report is not just how Paul was received, but that the Thessalonians repented. The whole goal of being received was so that they would repent and turn to the Lord. That is gospel ministry. That's what we mean when we say that ministry labors for nothing less than repentance. Now, most of the time, we focus on the first part without too much trouble. We want to be liked and received and welcomed. We like that kind of reputation generally. But the Macedonians and Achaeans couldn't only think of that aspect of gospel ministry. They also thought of repentance. And this repentance showed that they had not only seen the example of a gospel-transformed life in Paul, but that they had also heard gospel proclamation and responded to it. And that is how it should be with us as well. We must proclaim and we must live it out. We must be close enough to others to make an impact on them. So here's a question. How would you rate your life on this combination? Where are you strong? Where are you weak? Why have you become weak there? What must happen for you to get stronger there? You know, it's, it's something that we all need to do. We need to stop and prayerfully evaluate our own lives in order to know which side we are weaker in and then to figure out from God's word what we can do to get stronger in that area. You know, some of us are very focused on being sure we give out the gospel without necessarily being concerned with how we give it. You are going to know the contents of the gospel before, I, before I'm done with you. You know, we, we don't want to be satisfied with saying, hey, I gave them the gospel. You know, maybe it was a little harsh, but hey, at least they got the gospel. We, we don't want to be satisfied with that. At the same time, some of us might be more on the relational side. We might be inclined to think, well, you know, I just need to build a really strong relationship and show the love of Christ, but we never get around to actually sharing the gospel. So don't be satisfied with, well, I may not have given them the gospel, or I might have softened it a little, but hey, at least I was really loving we don't want to be satisfied with that either. Our goal is to give people the gospel, but that is never disconnected from our caring for people. And we have to watch ourselves because we all probably tend toward one or the other. We might favor one to the exclusion of the other. And so what do we need to be doing? We give the gospel and we impart our lives. We want to work to do both of these, to join the gospel content and gospel care together. They're inseparable. We might need to be a spiritual older woman who sacrifices time to walk with someone else, to be patiently bringing them along into what we're doing in order to help keep that path of the gospel clear. So let's each ask ourselves, who can I care for in that way? How can I do that? For those of us who are parents, <clears throat> Thank you.
excuse me, for those of us who are parents, we need to take these truths about ministry and be sure that we apply them in our homes, in our families. You know, sometimes we can get this mistaken, unbiblical idea that if we practice biblical discipline, our kids won't like us. But that's not the picture of gospel ministry that we get here. Our goal is to relate to our children so that we are easily received by them, that our correction, our discipline is received by them with the hope that it will produce the fruit of repentance in them. And sometimes we have to say hard things. But saying hard things does not, excuse me, but saying hard things does not mean that we have to be at odds with them. Saying hard things does not mean that uh, we don't go to them in such a way that it's crystal clear to them that we want to be right with them. We want to be right with them. We want to help them. We want to help them know and follow Christ. It's not a hammer. It's a come alongside and let me help you. And remember point number three, ministry involves imitation. How about giving others, especially our kids, an example of repentance? of living lives characterized by repentance so that they can imitate our repentance. Now, we saw in 1 Thessalonians 1 that this is specifically referring to their repentance at the point of their salvation, their conversion. But repentance unto salvation is just the beginning of a lifestyle of repentance in the life of a believer. A godly, imitatable woman is a woman living a life of repentance. Our own lifestyle of repentance is a very necessary and powerful part of being imitatable and being easily received by those to whom we come with the gospel, especially, especially when we're calling them to repentance, to turn from sin and to turn to Christ in obedience. So with the Thessalonians, what did this turning to God from idols look like? What characterized their repentance? Well, verse 9 and 10 say they turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. They served God and they waited for Jesus' return. Point number five is that ministry labors for nothing less than repentance. That means we labor for transformation of life. We labor to see people become servants of the Lord who long for Jesus to return. And remember, this is all done gently, like a nursing mother. We can't be harsh or abrasive. Go to 2 Timothy in your swipe in your Bible or turn in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Because I want to show you where Paul emphasizes this again. About halfway through 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. Second Timothy 2, verse 25, about halfway through, we read, If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses. That's what we want, right? An escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Well, of course that's what we want. We want to see people repent. Now, what does God want to precede that? What would God say he wants to display in the process of drawing someone to repentance? Now, what might we think? Well, what we've been talking about all morning, we would think, and rightly so, the gospel, right? The gospel. We've got to have the right message, and that's absolutely true. But right here, Paul's emphasizing something different. What does he lay out before that repentance? Look now back at verse 24, before earlier than where we started. Verse 24 says, the Lord's bondservant, now that means the slave of Christ, the follower of Christ, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God might grant them repentance. Do you see that? God invests in his slaves qualities that reflect, reflect the very same character that he used in drawing us to repentance. Romans 2.4 says that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And it's our responsibility and our privilege as those who are under grace to be that kind of messenger. Not quarrelsome, but kind, patient, teaching and correcting gently. 
That is who God loves to use in bringing people to repentance. That's what's being said here. That's the report that went out about Paul and Silas and Timothy. And if we're going to be that kind of women, we come back to discipline one. You know what I'm going to say, right? We shepherd our hearts. We shepherd our hearts because we understand how important it is for us to step into one another's lives with the right message, being the right kind of messenger, just like we've seen here in 1 Thessalonians 1. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the power of your word, that it's living, that it's active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, is able to discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Father, I pray that as we try to take in all that we've heard this morning, you would let your word be exactly that in each one of our hearts, Father. Father, I pray that you'd help each of us to be encouraged, take that next step, next step forward in being gospel ministers that display the gospel, that proclaim the gospel, that you would use us, oh, Lord, use us in one another's lives and the lives of the lost to bring glory to you. I do pray for our discussion time, Father. Please let that time be an encouragement to one another, be something that helps each of us grow. In Jesus' name, amen.